the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 493 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Well, we've got Andy Stanley back on the podcast, and uh, I got to tell you, after recording this one um, in person in Atlanta, the entire production crew came up to me after and said, when is this available? I want to get this interview to all of my friends. And I hope you feel the same way when we're done today. I know I do. Hey, this episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy. You can join a community of like-minded leaders, engage in really meaningful conversations, and gain access to my library of courses by heading over to theartofleadershipacademy.com and by ProMedia Fire. If you're a church or nonprofit looking to grow online, you can apply for their growth program today by going to promediafire.com slash growth. So Andy and I are going to talk, are you ready? We're going to talk politics. We're going to talk partisanship. We're going to talk ideology and even theocracy. Yeah. Okay. And how they're damaging the church. And also we'll get into the new metrics of ministry. Andy Stanley is a communicator, author, pastor, and founder of Atlanta-based North Point Ministries, which now includes seven churches in Metro Atlanta and a global network of nearly 100 partner churches. His messages, leadership videos, and podcasts receive millions of views monthly across a variety of digital platforms. Outreach Magazine has identified Andy as one of the 10 most influential living pastors in America. He's the author of more than 20 books, including his latest, which is called Not In It To Win It, Why Choosing Sides Sidelines the Church. Fascinating conversation, and I think you'll see why when we are done. Hey, just a note, this episode was recorded at the State of Your Church event in Atlanta with my friends at the Barna Group to watch other extended interviews with the State of Your Church contributors and read the full report. Go to barna.com slash access. While you're there, Barna's offering a discount code just for this audience. So use the code CAREY20, C-A-R-E-Y 20. You'll receive 20% off the annual subscription. I think as a lot of you know, I also have a YouTube channel and uh, this was uh, done in person. And uh, yeah, it's a beautifully shot video. So you may want to check that out or even use this at a staff meeting. So hey, a couple of months ago, my team and I launched something brand new called the Art of Leadership Academy. You may have heard me talk about it. I have been blown away by the community engagement. I was a little bit tired of the quality of conversation online. Maybe you are too. And I thought, okay, let's create this forum where we just have great church leaders and great business leaders, and we talk together. And my goodness, I mean, I've got all of my courses in there, my premium content. I do some monthly training. I do a live monthly coaching call. So all the content that we produce, the premium stuff is in there, but it's the conversation that is, I think, blowing the members away. Recently, one of our leaders, a young entrepreneur named Christy, asked, how does your church integrate and call up entrepreneurs and business leaders to take ownership over the vision and growth of your church? So we kind of have like little daily discussion forums. And I love the conversation. Pastors said, you know what? I don't really have anything. Others said, you know what? We actually started a monthly lunch to engage entrepreneurs. Uh, Other business leaders chimed in and said, hey, you know, here's what I'm thinking. And uh, I shared a dialogue that I had recently with Patrick Lencioni 
about how he felt he was being engaged by his church. So it was a robust conversation. And if you're interested in actually having conversations that move the needle, make sure you check out the Art of Leadership Academy. You can join this incredible community of leaders like Christy, shout out to her, um, by heading over to theartofleadershipacademy.com. It's just $397 a year. That's it. You get everything, including all of my premium courses, and you get some incredible leaders and mentors and thought leaders who are building into you on a daily basis. So go to theartofleadershipacademy.com and get in today. And are you an early adopter? My guess is a lot of you are because you listen to podcasts, right? And do you want to be on the cutting edge of tech? Well, ProMedia Fire is working on new technology for churches and nonprofits that has never been done before for mission-based organizations to grow online. So if you're looking to reach people online and you want to be involved in new cutting-edge solutions at a reasonable price, here are the requirements. You're a church between 100 and 800 members or a nonprofit with a $100,000 to $800,000 in annual revenue, revenue line. You have the budget to spend $100 to $200 a month to grow online, and you or a team member are willing to commit to one hour every month for growth. So if that's you, Promedia Fire is currently accepting applications for their growth program. The team will interview applicants and select a group so you can submit your application today for their growth program by going to promediafire.com growth. That is promediafire.com growth. And now, my conversation with Andy Stanley. And I'm here with Andy Stanley, one and only Andy Stanley, founding pastor of North Point Church and North Point Ministries. Andy, it's good to be with you. It's always good to be with you, Carrie. So the theme of this webcast has been measuring what matters in ministry. And over the last two years, you know, all of our metrics have just been thrown out the window. The stuff we counted on for decades, we can't count on. In your opinion, what do you think pastors should be measuring as we look to the future? And maybe even what do you have your eye on? Um, well, you know, there, there's just the basic stuff. I, I don't know yeah. any of that has changed in terms of right. just the blocking and tackling of church. I mean, for us, we reopened late, as everybody seems to know, and has continues to make fun of us for, which is fine. <laughs> um, but when we came back in, we found ourselves more um, attuned to families and, um, uh, not spending a lot of time trying to get people who are hesitant to come back to come back, but to focus on the people who are walking through the doors. And it's kind of the same stuff. It's, it's reaching unchurched people, being attuned to who's walking through the doors, what do they need, what can we do for them. So uh, I don't know in terms of what we're measuring, anything has changed significantly. Maybe it should. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. In fact, I, mean, you ha I think you have a theory about this. Well, we were talking ahead of time, a little theory, but again, I haven't been in the lead pastor seat, which you are still in but for a few mean, years. But that means you're a consultant and a professional. A professional, <laughs> so I just give my opinion That's and right, fly home, yeah. right? Uh, you know, I, I think about it because I think even, you know, when I was a pastor, I was used to seeing things sort of move in a progress direction, um, but we also had a real reset. I remember in 2009, after we launched Connexus, uh, I grew the church from about a thousand down to about four hundred just through my I skillful that. preaching. We were so happy to be connected with you. <laughs> That's yeah. right. At that time, you're yeah. like, yeah, we don't. Come have tell a us how you did it. I think was what we said. <laughs> we, we don't have a partner in Canada. Yeah. Just if anyone's asking, but it was one of those things where you know we left an almost paid for building that was beautiful and yeah. brand new and went into theaters and really got serious about reaching the unchurched. And I think there almost came a moment where I'm like, we can't worry about the people who left. They're not coming back. 
and we just have to focus on the people who are here. And what I did and was the re- people you're reaching, and the people because we're reaching. for you that was a major shift. It's why it's why you declined. It was a purposeful, mission-driven decline. It was. It was totally supposed to be a mission-driven decline. I'm sure I exacerbated it a little bit through something I did or didn't do right. But, you know, and then I I just said, we got to focus on who's here, not worry about the people who have left, Mm -hmm. and just look to the future. And I gave a bunch of calls out to people saying, look, if this church isn't exciting enough to invite your friends to, then, you know, we shouldn't be in existence. And that grew from that handful or several hundred people to what became a church of three or 4,000 um, by the time I left the lead pastor role and about 1,500 on the weekend. And so we grew it back, but it wasn't by getting people back. It was by focusing on who was in the room. Another metric that's really interesting, I used to get a report all the time. I was talking to Scott Sauls about it in between you know, moments in this, this webinar. Uh, but it was five categories of giving. New givers people who would increase their giving, people who were just stable in their giving, slight decline, and then stopped giving. And the stories were always on the margins. People who were new, and I'll bet, you know, at North Point, you have new givers that you never had before. You've got people who've increased their giving, which is probably a sign of devotion. You've also got people who have fallen off, which you would think, oh, they just don't like us anymore. But what I discovered when someone made a phone call is that often there was some life situation, someone got laid off or a child had some needs that, that needed financial attention. There was almost a pastoral story. And then even for the final column, the people who were leaving, you know, there was that. And then I would also track uh, new baptisms and new people who are taking steps. So new people, uh, so maybe the number's smaller. So you're saying these are the things that you measured then that you think we we will probably just always I don't continue know. Does to that, measure. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. In fact, this morning, you know, Joel Thomas, who just yeah, came yeah. back to take Buckhead Church, um, he did a similar thing in, in Gilbert at the church he was pastoring before he came back to work for us. In fact, we had the discussion this morning about, because um, when people stop giving, there's always this sensitivity. You don't want them to think, oh no, we're just after your money and they haven't heard from us in any other capacity. And suddenly they stop giving and they get a phone call. That's just weird, yeah. right? And he talked, he said exactly what you said. He said, we found a way to connect with those people and it became very pastoral for your, the very th- reasons you gave. There had been a life change. They've not, uh, we don't know about it. Uh, uh-huh. Or the people who are in their small group haven't contacted the church because they're engaged with that family. But the church hasn't officially engaged because we don't know. He said in many of those conversations or those phone calls resulted in pastoral moments. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so, yeah, that's a, that's an awkward call to make, but it's it's part of what the church does, and it's part of staying engaged with people. We were at another event recently together, and I heard you say something that that I've heard you say many times over the years, but it just fell like fresh information. But you talked about, okay, so North Point hasn't been immune from people who aren't coming back. The room is not as full as it used to be. But you talked about, okay, look at the fundamentals here. We have money in the bank. We have empty seats at optimal times. And I thought, boy, that is a very different perspective than focusing on who's not here. Do you want to talk about the importance of empty seats at optimal times yeah. to church growth? Yeah. Um, I Again, I right before I came to have this conversation, I met with 30 new staff. And um, this is one of the things that we talked about. They, uh, I, I said to them, hey, you've come to work for us at an extraordinary time because it's ideal. We have yeah. space. We have financial resources. We have people resources. The mission's the same. And um, it's never been easier to attend one of our local churches. And so, you know, it's like God said, here, here's, you know, 
here's all these resources. You know, what are you going to do to build my kingdom? So, um, of course, we want people to come back. And people who are going to come back, they're going to come back. But in terms of uh, energy around, I mean, there's no point trying to talk adults into coming back to church, right? They, they know where we are. They're in group, and many of them continue to give. So for us, um, in terms of reaching unchurched people or reengaging people who've, you know, been away from the church for years, we feel like we're in the, per- we have, you know, the opportunities have never been better. And, and again, every, there's no one size fits all when it comes to church or church strategies, you know that. But in our particular communities in the Atlanta area where we are, the, the density, the populations have increased in some cases significantly. In fact, you, we were just talking to you, you know, 15 years ago when you came to where we are right now because yeah. we're right next door to North Point Community Church. I mean, it's like a different, if, if you dropped in from 10 years ago, or if you, if you dropped in and hadn't been here in 10 years, you wouldn't even know where you were. No, so in multiple, in most of our communities, the density has increased, the people have come to us, and we don't, we have no excuse. I mean, goodness, I feel like we're more, purpose, more purposeful and more on mission than ever before with fewer excuses than ever before. And the pandemic um, was, you know, difficult. I mean, we lost families. We lost people through the, all the political turmoil as well. But in terms of opportunities to re, un, reach unchurched people, it's never been better. I've never been more excited. And so back to your original question in terms of what we measure, um, it's going to, you know, fall in that big bucket of measuring things strategically in light of what we are there to do. So we may have partially answered this question already because I love the the angle you're looking at empty seats with, empty seats at optimal times, right? But Barna data has revealed that 38% of pastors have seriously considered leaving full-time ministry, not just their church, but like, yeah, I'm going to go sell insurance or something like that. What would you say to pastors who are watching this who are saying, Andy, I love that, but I'm still really discouraged? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm a preacher's kid. I think preacher's kids sometimes have a little bit different perspective. Um, pastoring church work is difficult. It's Groundhog Day. It's, you know, it's Christmas, and then it's Easter, and then it's summer, and then it's Christmas, and then it's Easter and summer, and then there's Sunday, 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 Sunday. So if you don't love this, and if you aren't experiencing some kind of encouragement in terms of, of life change or something that says, oh, I, you know, I'm what, what God called me to do, I'm seeing it happen. It can be extremely discouraging. So I say to pastors, you know, when we have these conversations, look, don't, you know, if you feel like you need to get out, get out, but don't give up. And don't, and, and maybe it's a not for, it's, you know, it's a not for now, but not forever, not for now, but not forever. Hey, take a break. This doesn't mean you're abandoning your calling. It means you're being redeployed somewhere else. But don't don't close the door on pastoring and don't close the door on ministry. But if you need a break, figure out a way to get out. Because if you stay in too long, you just get cynical, you get critical, you get negative. And if you stay in too long, you run the risk of losing not just your passion for ministry, you run the risk of losing your faith, yeah. right? And you, we've, we've seen that. Uh-huh. So don't stay in this so long that you lose your faith or that your kids do or that you lose your marriage because, hey, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So I have, I've never been critical of pastors, or not even just pastors, people who have vocational ministers of any sort in any level in a church who've said, you know what, I got to get out. It's like, get out. That you're not being unfaithful to God. You're being faithful to your health. You're being faithful to your family. You're being faithful to your sanity. And you're not out of the ministry. You're just not working at a church. And that's okay. But don't close the door permanently in your mind or heart about your involvement in the local church because new seasons bring new energy and new opportunities. So that's, you know, 
It's another fresh take. Personal question. Why haven't you quit? You've been at this for a while. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't want to quit. I, the, I, and I, I, I shared this with the group we were with last week. And I'm not making this up. If Sandra were here, she would tell you. I have never been more excited about Sunday morning. I, I, I just, um, I love preaching as much as I've ever loved it. I've loved preparation. I love showing up. And it's interesting because there are fewer people. You were running about 60% of where we were in 2019. Um, and that, that just doesn't bother me. And it's not because I'm so mature and so spiritual. I think I just love church. And because, you know, we quit meeting, you know, person, you know, in person for so long, I missed it. I love being back. I, again, I feel like we have more opportunity than ever. And the people who are there are so, I feel like they're more missional and more missionally engaged because the people that quit coming were, you know, the people that were probably coming once a month or, you know, every once in a while anyway, maybe, I don't know that for sure. So I feel like the people who are there, there's more energy and more excitement. And we, again, like anyone who paid attention to what happened in 2020, we learned so many things organizationally. Um, we learned so many things in terms of how to do some things more efficiently, better. And we're bringing all that new learning into what we're doing now. And I, I've never been more excited or more energized. So I don't want to quit. I think one of the first books I ever read that you wrote was Next Generation Leader. You've been passionate about next generation leaders for a long time. What do you think, if anything, the pandemic has done to the next generation of leaders as you look around at sort of that younger generation at North Point First and church around? Leaders? Yeah, church leaders. Well, um, here's just, just in our church context specifically, what they saw, and again, I just— my meeting right before this one, I was with these 30 new employees. Most of them are, it's their first real job. You know, we kind of sure. went around there, which is so interesting. They're right out of college or graduate school. Or we have a residence program. They're right out of seminary. And the ones that tracked with us, you know, that came in early enough in 2019 to say, oh, here's how it's normally done, then experienced the transition into the pandemic and now have transition, experienced the transition back into, you know, meeting on a regular basis. What they experienced is, and, and this makes me very proud of our organization, is that we truly are mission driven. We are not program driven. I say all the time, marry, you know, marry the, the mission, date the model, date the model, marry the mission. Well, when we decided not to meet in person, we, we were nimble enough and redeployed our resources and our staff to do extraordinary ministry in the community and went digital so quickly. I mean, we transitioned so quickly. And then when we began to slowly open up to transition back, but carry some of that digital learning, what it said to that generation, which is what they need to know, is we're not stuck in our old ways. If you work in an organization for two years, it's tempting to say, oh, they're never gonna change. If you work in an organization 10 years, you experience some of that change. So what it did is it compressed this timeline and it said to them, wow, the, you know, the leader may be older, but." This is an, a nimble organization. They turned on a dime, really almost overnight. Right. We did not, our church was not closed. Goodness, we did more things in some capacity than we've ever done before. And so transitioning to digital with community impact, transitioning back to live with community impact, digital to, to live, it was, you know, it was a lot of change, but it was because, you know, our mission wasn't to have a Sunday morning service with people shoulder to shoulder in room. That's not our mission. That's a model. And we were able to abandon that part of the model 
for the sake of staying on mission during the pandemic. So for millennials, we're all kind of tired of that word, you know, for the 30-year-olds and, and especially the 20-year-olds, it was, it was like this, then it was this, then we're back to this. So I think there was a sense of this is not an organization that is married to the model because we pretty much put our entire Sunday model on hold in order to transition to something that was mission-centered. So I think that was a, a great experience for a lot of them. And I came out of that encouraged that our organization really is mission-driven rather than, oh, we, oh no, we can't work our model, so we're paralyzed until you know the pandemic's over or we can get back in the building. And I'm not being critical at all of churches that you know reopened way earlier than us. Again, every community's different, every city's different. Um, so, but that was, you know, that was our experience. And, and I too, Carrie, I think that's one reason I've come out of this more excited about our local churches and pastoring because it was a whirlwind of change and I love change and it just made me proud of our local churches. So as we look to the future, um, and you think ahead, are there other parts of the model that you want to re-examine or you think may not be as promising as they once were? Our ministry model? Yeah. Um, we are in, well, you know us, we're in constant conversation about that. We really are. And I can't think of anything specific um, that I would say, hey, we're not going to do this anymore. We we developed some skills during the pandemic and we were we didn't meet, we didn't have in-person services for a little over a year. Yeah. So it was a long stretch. And so we developed some, you know, some, we had a bunch of reps with digital captures that I, I feel like I got better with working off teleprompter. We learned how to capture in our auditorium with about 40 people and make it feel like, you know, the, the room is full. So we will continue. It, it just created some, again, some skills that we'd never had to develop. This sounds crazy, but... Many of our campuses, we have large open spaces, lawns. Like we have four acres of yeah. grass <laughs> right yeah. out front of North Point. And occasionally in the past, we would take advantage of that space. Well, during you know the pandemic, again, this is why you know the, we people say, "Oh, you closed your church." Like, no, we had we did so many things on the lawn, but we learned to use our lawn and use it efficiently. Well, that learning, we're gonna to continue to carry forward. We created a brand new Christmas tradition during the pandemic that we did outside and it worked so well. We did it this Christmas as well. So again, I, I don't, we haven't abandoned any pieces of the model um, because again, the model isn't programming. The model is a model that you adapt programming and develop programming for. So um, yeah, I don't think, I can't think of anything that we, you know, would abandon in terms of the, the model specifically. Well, you're one of the finest communicators I've ever heard and many people have ever heard. Talk about the difference between speaking to an empty room teleprompter versus a live crowd. Were you glad to see the live crowd back or oh how'd you goodness, feel about that? Yes, goodness. But so, yeah. and this may be irrelevant, so just stop me if this is too much. So, you know, the first couple Sundays, you know, because I've spoken to live, to uh, empty rooms before. I mean, yeah. we've, you, you do that from time to time. Um, so, but unfortunately, I did what you, nor you normally do. I tried to do something new the old way, and it was horrible. So I went after the third week to 100% teleprompter. So for almost a year, I preached teleprompter messages. I scripted out the whole thing. I used to still use the you know OLED on stage, but I was reading my sermons, and I got 
I got good at it because I would always watch it and I learned what to do with my eyes. I learned to look away. I learned to walk around. I learned, I didn't pretend like there were people in the room. I didn't look around like the room is full. I didn't do that. That's, that's not good. So it was straight to camera, but it's 30, 35 minutes of reading a teleprompter without trying to look like I read a teleprompter. Uh-huh. And it- That's a skill. I, well, it is a skill. It's a skill you never develop unless you have to. Right. I, and I'll tell you who, who, where I was challenged with this originally, and you may laugh. Years ago, um, Glenn Beck had his 4.30 or 4 o'clock show on Fox News. Right. He was doing this thing. He wanted to do some big thing for the religious leaders on the mall in D.C. So he invited a bunch of us. He wanted to have a meeting. So that meeting, I never participated in what the meeting was about. But part of the visit, we got to sit in on a show. And I watched Glenn Beck use a combination of teleprompter and live, and it was brilliant. Regardless of what you think about Glenn Beck, it was And I came home and I told our team, I want to learn to do that. I want to learn as a communicator to be able to leverage both genres at the same, it was so amazing. So I began you know, working on teleprompter skills. Well then COVID comes along and it's a good thing, but it forced me to manuscript, read it without looking like I'm reading it. And then when all that went away, I was so happy to you know, communicate to a live audience, but I still am able to do that. And now when we do our one-offs or when we do promos for stuff, it's, you know, it's, it's a muscle I exercise for a year. And as a communicator, you know, you want to get better and you want to learn new things. And it forced us to learn some new things. Shifting gears a little bit, you talk a lot about your father, Charles Stanley. Um, and he just stepped back from full-time vocational ministry. Finally. finally. This How past fall, 89. Yeah, he was 88. And he finally said, I think I need to. But it was during his church, First Baptist Atlanta, was still closed down because of the pandemic. They hadn't reopened. So he, unfortunately, he resigned without the church meeting. So he didn't get to preach his last sermon. He didn't get to walk out there in front of the audience and say his fond farewell. So we wrote a script together and he recorded it. And so I I hated that for him, but he didn't get to have his final Sunday after being the pastor there 50 years. But he knew, you know what, I'm not gonna, I'm probably not gonna be able to go back. And And he'd already put a successor in place. So all of that was, it just... It was smooth, but 89. But I used to say, Dad, you've got to retire so I can retire. I cannot retire before you. So please, you know, don't, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to do this till I'm 89 years old. But um, yeah, he's, now he's just bored. So So think about legacy for a moment. And, you know, you're going to have a legacy. We all have a legacy one way or the other. And we've seen a lot of instances of pastors who've had a very different legacy than anyone would have hoped for. What are some keys in your mind to finishing well? Finishing well or legacy? Take it, take it how you want. Well, you, the, just thinking about our churches as an organization, it needs to be stronger than ever, more focused than ever, better staffed than ever, better led than ever, better preached than ever. So part of my responsibility is to hand those things off in a timely way so that when I disappear, um, Ideally, nobody misses me. Right. Um, uh, hopefully, even if they don't remember me, they don't. They don't need to miss my leadership. They don't need to miss my communication. So, part of my responsibility is to hand it off. You know, the, and again, as you know, in, in large church, there's the preaching piece, the communication piece, and there's their leadership piece. 
And so I carried, you know, I wear the, a lot of the mantle for both of those and I'm slowly, you know, transitioning or, you know, handing some of that off. So success, of course, is succession. And um, that's the goal. You're right. That is part of your legacy because a lot of well, people- in terms of legacy, yeah. I hope yeah. my legacy, a part of my legacy is, um, we're not sure when he left, but they don't, it's, it's, it's as good as it's ever been or better. That's a really good point because often pastors wait until the point where it's a shadow of what it was, COVID notwithstanding. Right. Here, you take this. Right. So you're saying part of that is I would feel like I would feel like a failure if that were the case. Right. And time will tell, right? And nobody knows what tomorrow holds. But um, to your point, we've seen it done not so well, and we've done it, seen it done well. And um, I, you know, when I meet with Ernie's staff today, again, I keep referencing that. You know, I, one of the things I say to young staff is you're going to feel like from time to time nobody's listening to you. You'll have all these great ideas and your great ideas don't get implemented. And you're going to be tempted to think they aren't listening. They don't care. And I say to the new staff, I say, look at me. I am they. And if you will, just for a minute, put yourself in my shoes. Could anyone possibly care more about this church than me? And the answer is no. I love our church and I love our organization. So when you hear that little voice in your head says they don't care, you just remember, I am they, so to speak, and no one cares more. So in terms of legacy and success, because I love our churches and I love our organization, the continuing effective ministry is beyond me is success for me. I mean, that's the way I think about it. And I genuinely feel that way. And for founders, it's a little different than somebody who, you know, comes to a church and inherits a model and everything else. So it's, it's a little bit different and it's trickier. And succession in a multi-site church as we're learning is, can be very tricky. And, and, no, and again, this is a relatively new thing for founders of multi-site churches to transition. And it's interesting to see how how well it's done and how unwell it's done at times. And it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's generally, generally nobody's fault. It's new territory, so. So what I want to focus on for the rest of our time together, because we could go in so many different directions, is you got a new book called Not In It to Win It. And I'm very anxious to crack a copy, Andy, because I know we talked a couple of years ago at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was one of those things where people were leaving churches left, right, and center, jumping off the boat. And you did a number of phone calls. We talked about it on my podcast. A number. A number, quite a few phone calls of people who had left mad. And you said, if, and correct me if I'm quoting you wrong, not one of them was theological. It was all ideological or political. Yeah. Let's pick up where that, where we left off. How has the political ideological dialogue either infected or affected the church and intensified over the last two years? Well, speaking for me and multiple pastors, yeah. you've probably heard from or spoken to as many as I have, you know, it's like, so just to be very specific, you know, we, these are generally Republicans who were upset with me and upset with their pastors because we wouldn't take a stand, which really means we wouldn't take their stand because we were taking a stand. We just weren't standing where they were standing. And in these phone calls and conversations, and I always made sure they ended friendly. So these weren't hostile, but the, the emails, and the, you know, an email can be hostile, voicemail hostile. Then you get the person on the phone, it's like the temperature comes down. So that's, that's why I called all these people because the ones I called had been engaged and active. These weren't, you know, just internet people, you know, bombing us, right? And to, to your point, once we got past all the rhetoric, 
They were just mad that I wouldn't take a stand and that I had bought into the Democratic the Democrats' narrative, and we were shutting down the church because the government was forcing us to. And I'm like, state of Georgia, the governor never asked us to shut down. We, and, and where it was, it didn't exactly hurt my feelings, but it was disturbing. The reason we gave for suspending in-person services is the actual reason we suspended in-person services. And they just didn't believe us. That's what it came down to. I, I said, no, th this wasn't government pressure. We're trying to be a good neighbor. And even though you don't think we should not have potential super spreader events, the people we're trying to reach are convinced we shouldn't have super spreader events. So this is actually missional. We are trying to impact our neighbors and our neighborhoods, and this is how we be good neighbors and you know be good in our neighborhood. So nobody is pressuring us to do this. We are trying to endear, this is one of our words, you know, we are endearing ourselves to the community and this is one of the ways that we're doing it. This is missional. <laughs> they just weren't buying it. I was like, gonna nope. say, that didn't change your mind. <clears throat> nope, nope, you just, you're just, you buy it. And then, then I hear all the Republican talking points, like I live in a cave, I'm like, okay, you didn't make any of that up. Okay, I, I, I hear the same things. Anyway, it's, it was so frustrating. Now for us, you know, we're a big church, we're gonna survive all that. But as you know, there are pastors all over in medium-sized to small churches. They almost, they didn't survive. This is, you know, men Fatal and women decided, I'm, I'm out. I just, these people are crazy. I, I, I can't do this. And I'm very conservative. And I'm conservative politically. But when we say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag in the United States, you may not know this. Oh, being Canadian. We say, and it was added in 1957 or 58, one nation under God. We, it, every time a conservative Republican says the Pledge of Allegiance, they declare what we were modeling. It's one nation, but it's under God. I mean, and no one would disagree. It's <laughs> duh. It's God first, nation second. No one would disagree with that. That and that is what fueled and drove our decisions. And when a family, a community, or a nation is under God, it's a better family, nation, and community. And the responsibility of the church is to be the conscience of the nation so that the nation is blessable under the canopy of, you know, following God. And I'm not, you know, I'm not quoting scripture. That's not, I don't have any verses to back that up. That's just, you know, wherever the church thrives, people thrive. And wherever the church has influence, people thrive. And so, but there was just a group of people, they were not buying it, they still don't buy it, and I hope they come back someday. So I don't know how long you've been talking about this, but this is not a new concern of yours. I remember series that probably go back a decade where you would try to talk about the divide that existed. It's probably only intensified over the last couple of years. Why do you think, do you have a theory on why people are more passionate about their ideology than their theology. <clears throat> because there is no money to be made in the middle and you can't even market anything in the middle, right? You market and make money on the extremes. That's, and that, I'm not knocking anything, that's just reality. Uh -huh. there's, there's not even, there's nothing in the middle, but except that's where you solve problems. Problems are solved in the middle, shared experiences happen in the middle. I, I have that sense of, oh, Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't know that. I always thought. I, you learn in the middle, but you market and you make money in the extremes. So during a political season, 
you know, all the money and all the influence, you know, it all runs to the extremes. And then add to that, ginning up things that are on both sides that are not true. And it's the fear factor. And you, you gain followers by, with this message. So anybody that's looking for a message to gain followers, here's how you do it. Here's what's gonna happen if you don't. And I'm gonna ensure that it doesn't. Here's what's gonna happen. Here's what's gonna happen. But I'm gonna keep that from happening. So I'm gonna give you something to be afraid of. And then I'm gonna offer myself as the solution. That's how you win elections. That's how you raise money. That's never gonna change. And I'm not even trying to change that. But Christians should be smarter than that. This isn't new. We've been manipulated that way by products, by politicians. You know, this isn't new. But you would think Christians who, you know, the, you know, the command reiterated and repeated more than anything else in the New Testament is, fear not. Fear not, I am with you. So we should have the objectivity as believers to listen to all that, laugh about it, joke about it, vote for our candidate of choice, but not fall for the, here's what you should be afraid of, but have, fear not, I'm here to keep that from happening. So goodness, it's just, it's, just, it's just disappointing because the church, and when I say the middle, people immediately quote Revelation to me, don't be hot or cold, but lukewarm, you're lukewarm. I'm like, that's not what Jesus was talking about, but anyway. The, the middle, the middle is where people understand other people. The middle is where ministry is, is done. And it's not about compromise. It's about loving people. And you can't love on the extremes because the other trick is this. In this world, the goal, and this is very important, the goal is always to look like you're losing. The goal is never to win. If you win, the tension goes away. You can't raise any money. You can't get more followers. Yeah. So the goal is there's an enemy and they're winning. So you need to buckle down and you need to swing further left or further right because we're losing. The goal is to appear as if you're losing so you can gain more followers and raise more money. And that's absurd. And most Americans should be smarter than that. But Christians... I'm again, none of this is new, right? No. So, but has it intensified? Oh, yeah. Like I, I read- Intensified because of social media. Everybody has okay. a microphone and an opinion. That's, you know, that's the, yeah. the new thing in the mix. So, and, and that's not gonna change. Well, Doris Kearns Goodwin, the historian, she wrote Leadership in Turbulent Times. She argues that Lyndon B. Johnson, 1960s, was the last politician who really did a good job of going across the house. Because that's how the Great Society yeah, got right. passed, et cetera. Uh, so much civil rights legislation and progress was made in, in, in that area. In the 90s, another theory, um, Congress, people of Congress who went to Congress, they stopped living in Washington. Yep. And they started going home and to their writings. relationships writing. evaporated. Yeah, talk about that. Diane. Well, there's no shared experience. We're right. not friends anymore. The yeah. only, only time I see you is when we're arguing about something. And then I go back and surround myself with my constituency and you go and surround yourself with your constituency and get them all ginned up. And, you know, it's, it's a recipe so for division. The argument was, even in the Reagan era or the early Clinton years, you know, I might be on one side of the aisle, you're on the other, but we see each other at the ball game, we yep. see each other at church, we see yep. each other in restaurants. When you no longer live in Washington. Shared that, experience. That shared experience. Do you argue or could you argue, because I haven't read the manuscript, that that got intensified during the pandemic because we didn't see anybody. It was me and my little loop 
with people who are more extreme yeah. than me. Well, it's a perfect storm. We had yeah. racial, ramped up, amped up racial division and sure. issues, which were real and important, political, and the pandemic all together at one time. Yeah. And isolation and 800,000, you know, six, seven, 800,000 people died. And, and, you know, vaccine, no vaccine, one, two, three doses, no doses, you know, and then all the conspiracy theories. Yeah, it, it was, it was a mess. But, and, and correct me if you think I'm wrong. Yeah. Just read the New Testament. This is not, this isn't complicated. This is, I'm a Jesus follower which means I'm not gonna be critical. I'm not gonna do anything to diminish my influence with anybody. In fact, I'm gonna do everything I can to gain influence with the people I want to influence. That yeah. one simple idea that, you know, it's New Testament through and through. It's the Apostle Paul. I will become all things to all people in order that I might win some. If the church had just been locked in on that one simple idea, it would have been impossible to divide us even though we don't agree politically because differences of opinion are, are a reality, but division is a choice. Division is always 100% a choice. Difference of opinions, different of pers difference of perspectives, that's healthy, but division is a choice. The church chose to be divided. It was no longer one nation under God. It was, I'm gonna drape my I'm gonna drape my religion all over my politics and proof text it. And then pastors all over the place did, you know, facilitated that. And anyway. And to be fair, I know you would make this point. It's not just the right, it's also oh, the left. You can the, go to other denominations, it's totally progressive, absolutely. totally. I'm just in the churches Democrat. that are, you know, that Tenable. lean more right. And I lean more right politically. Sure. So, sure. you know, I'm, I, in fact, in the book, the book's called Not In It To Win It. I say up front, I'm choosing my pronoun, you know, on purpose. This is we, this isn't you, this is we. I'm a Christian and I'm an evangelical. So when I talk about how evangelicals, you know, miss the opportunity of a lifetime, I can't point my finger because Paul, the apostle Paul said, we're a body. And he doesn't say, he didn't say you get to choose your body because God appointed you as part of the body. So I'm part of this body and the body always rises and falls together. So this is a we problem and I'm part of the problem and I wanna be part of the solution. So I'm not shaking my finger at, at anybody. Which is mature because <laughs> it's easy to separate maturity, that. Yes. <laughs> why have Christians, why have Christians drunk the Kool-Aid on this? The partisan ideological Kool-Aid on both sides of the spectrum. Why have we fallen for a narrative that isn't the church? I guess I don't know, but it's a, as a pastor, I feel like it's a failure of discipleship because the solution or the perspective that should be maintained is throughout the New Testament. And think about this. The apostle Paul, shows up in a culture where he's got, you know, we have two buckets. Everything's, everything's politicized, red or blue, right? There's right. no middle ground. He had three. He had Rome, he had local priesthoods and religions, and he had the temple. Yeah. And he refused to get in any of those buckets. He, I mean, he was attacked from all three sides and he refused to go either way. And that's why we're still talking about him. And it's why his literature, his letters shaped Western civilization. If he had gone empire, local priesthood or temple, we wouldn't have heard about him. And so, and, and then again, the other thing is too, you follow Jesus through the gospels and every, every, every both sides, we're, we're trying to have a piece of Jesus. You know, I want you to, you know, whose side is he on? And he refused. That's why we're still talking about him because 
He's the Lord. You know, he's not a constituency. He didn't, you know, when he started, when he said, I'm going to build my church, that means I'm, this is something brand new. This is something unique. It's not going to fit in any of the buckets. And as Christians, we should be politically active. We should be socially active. We should vote our, you know, our Christ-informed conscience. But at the end of the day, I have more in common. I should have more in common with Christians who are on the other side of the political divide than I have with people who are not Christian. But one of the things I say in the book, like, hey, would would you be more disappointed if your son or daughter lost their faith or changed politics? You know, which, and you know, we know the right answer to that. Oh, I I don't want them to lose their faith, but I don't want them to become a Republican. I don't want them to become a Democrat. Well, which one would bother you most? Is it one nation under God or one God under nation? And we know the right answers, it, but it becomes so emotionally charged. And, and I'll shut up after this. When Jesus in John 17, he could have prayed for anything. The, the only time we catch Jesus praying for those that will come to faith through the testimony of the apostles and the generations after that, the only thing he prays for is unity. The enemy of the church is not a political party. The enemy of the church is disunity. Period. Because imagine what would happen in our neighbors, neighborhoods in our country if the church came together around the great commandment, the great commission, red, yellow, black, and white, Republican or Democrat. Hey, you'll never divide us. You know, you, you can market to us, you can bait us, but you'll never divide us. Well, when that happens, the world begins to change. And during the pandemic, it's why I believe we had the greatest opportunity of our lifetime as the church to make a difference. And we got in a spitting match with mayors and governors and local municipalities and the other party, and we we just we missed an opportunity. So I'd be tempted to close right there because it's such a, a hopeful note. But I want to ask you one more question. <laughs> there maybe. is hope. There's always there is hope. hope right? There's always yeah. hope. Why do you think so many people are looking to theocracy, the government as the answer? In other words, a government infused with Christian values or Christian as on the Supreme Court, as president in Congress, why do we see the fusion of church and state as the answer? Or uh, not everybody does, yeah, but no, many people say, do. More, I've seen it more. In t- I have a good degree in history and political science. I'm seeing it more in this moment. You probably have better answer to that well, I, than I, I do. I don't know. I mean, it's never worked. I just feel like, you know what? my opinion, we have married people to the Bible. We have not married people to following Jesus. Because if you decide I'm going to be a Jesus follower, there's no room for any of that. There, there's, I mean, there's zero room for any of that. Um, because Jesus was so clear, the apostle Paul was so clear on all of these things. And when the Apostle Paul's eyes were open on the road to Damascus, he saw everything different. Think about this. He went from someone who could leverage violence for the sake of doing God's will to someone who abandoned all things violence as a Jesus follower because there's no room. There's no room for war imagery. There's no win for, you know, conquer and divide imagery. There's no room for, hey, if we we get the right person in, you know, the world's going to change and we're going to, you know, Christianize America, all that nonsense. All you got to do is read the New Testament. And there is a way forward, but that is not the way. That is basically 
leveraging the, the rules and the ways of the kingdoms of this world to somehow create an end that represents the kingdom of God. And Jesus was so clear. He, came to be, he was the king who came to reverse the order of things. And the moment we try to unreverse, we become a constituency and a voting block and game over. Andy, I can't wait to read the book. It's called Not In It to Win It. And Why uh, Choosing Sides Sidelines the Church, subtitle. Well, I'm going to be digging in. Andy, thanks for spending time thanks, with Karen. us again today. Appreciate you so much. Well, if you're like the crew when we shot that in Atlanta, you may want to share this with a lot of people in your orbit. I hope you do. I find Andy's voice on this so refreshing. He has a brand new book called Not In It to Win It, and you can get that everywhere books are sold. I would encourage you to do that. And hopefully this helps move the needle on the dialogue in the church and get us back on mission. And frankly, even if you're not involved in the church, hopefully this helps you figure out how to have family conversations and dinner with friends again without it getting into a really argumentative state. Andy, thanks so much for the contribution and everything that you're doing. Again, the book is called Not In It to Win It. So today's episode is brought to you by the Art of Leadership Academy. Join a stellar community of like-minded leaders, quality debate, meaningful conversations, all of my courses, live coaching, and a whole lot more. Go to theartofleadershipacademy.com. It's way less expensive than you would think for everything that we're giving you. And if you're a church or nonprofit looking to grow online, apply for their growth program today by going to promediafire.com slash growth. That's promediafire.com slash growth. So next episode, <laughs> we've got Dr. John Deloney. Actually, I'm going to put a PG-13 on this one. I know some of you, you tell me you listen with your kids. Uh, you can do it if they're teenagers, but yeah, we go there uh, and we talk about why married people have stopped having sex, the impact of isolation, theological malpractice, and why so many young leaders are angry. It was a pretty fascinating interview. Here's an excerpt. Our church used to give us safety. Our community, our tribe mm. used to give us safety. And now I get that existential safety from my spouse. Safety and desire, this is from Esther Perel, safety and desire don't work well together. And so now instead of, practicing desire, I got to practice safety. So think about this. You date somebody, you uh -huh. see them. And I, I saw my wife, I'm like, she's pretty. I want to go out with her. Desire is wired into that. I'm going to practice safety. Is she going to show up on time? Is she going to text me back? Is she going to get mad at me if we have different political opinions? We're practicing safety. Then when we say, I do, we both say, all right, we just handcuffed ourselves to each other. Now, for the rest of our lives, we have to be about practicing desire, and we have no models for doing that. And if you subscribe, you get that automatically. And of course, as you know, subscribing is free. Also coming up, we've got Susan Kane, Daniel Pink, Trip Crosby, Albert Tate, Ramit Sethi. Uh, who else have we got? We've got Nona Jones and so many others coming up on the podcast. I'm very excited for that. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review. And we are going to continue to do this week after week after week. And if you enjoyed this uh, and you want to go deep, I'll tell you where I show up every day. That's in the Art of Leadership Academy. So you can go there and get access to a growing library of premium on-demand courses, live monthly coaching calls, monthly staff training, and a community of top-tier leaders. And if you're looking for other shows um, that you might enjoy, make sure you check out the Art of Leadership Network. That is our brand new podcast network. And we've got just over a half dozen shows. And the shows are hosted by top leaders. And they talk about culture, entrepreneurship, executive leadership, organizational culture, and so much more. You can simply go to theartofleadershipnetwork.com or just search Art of Leadership Network wherever you listen to your podcast. So 
doing an awful lot for leaders these days. Really enjoy being able to serve with you. And thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.